All right. Well, hey, this summer uh, we are uh, walking through some of uh, the famous uh, Bible stories uh, that we uh, find in Scripture. And so uh, last weekend uh, when we were together, uh, we were talking about uh, this uh, woman named Deborah. And Deborah is a judge in the time of Israel. And so what's happened is Moses has died. And then after Moses dies, uh, Joshua um, rises up as the leader of Israel. And it's actually Joshua that helps lead uh, the people of God um, into uh, the promised land. But then there's a time where Joshua dies. And instead of uh, one single leader uh, to carry Israel forward, they have like a 400-year period of time uh, before they get an actual king in the book of 1 Samuel. They have like 400 years where they have all of these different judges. And so all different kinds of people who are leading Israel, who are seeking the wisdom of God as they go about that. And so last week was about Deborah and her leadership. And, and this week we want to talk about Gideon. So we're still in the book of Judges. So you can page forward a couple chapters from where we were last week, Judges chapter 4. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6. We're going to read um, a little bit uh, of that today. So Judges chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1, so again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their own crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not share a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. And Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So here's what we showed last week. Here's kind of the, the area that we're talking about. And so we have uh, to uh, the north, you have the Sea of Galilee. You can kind of see that light little blue uh, spot. And then in the south, uh, you have the Dead Sea. And so that's kind of where... Uh, this is all happening. And so the ministry of Jesus, uh, thousands of years later, is going to take place all in, this, all in this area. And so here's the list of judges we talked about uh, last week. Othaniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzon, Elon, Abdon, Samson. And so last week was Deborah, and today we want to talk a little bit about uh, a man named Gideon. But in the very first verse of chapter 6 of Judges, we hear that Israel once again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so just like last week we talked about idolatry, that Israel, this is the thing that is going to trip Israel up again and again and again in their walk with God. It's not going to be smooth just because they have stepped into the land of promise. Like Israel at this time literally is living in a miracle. Because they used to be in Egypt. They used to be ordered around. They used to be oppressed. 
And now they're in their land of promise. Like everything that God was promising to them, like they are living in. And yet, here's the amazing part. They're still like, why is God doing this to us? Even when they're living in a miracle. And so I think it's just like a moment in the scriptures that can just be lifted out for us. Like we are always in our walk with God going to struggle with sight. I think it's one of the reasons why the gospel writers record miracles where Jesus healed people's sight. Because, man, like it can be a really, really difficult thing for us to see what is actually in front of us. There can be promised land in front of us, but we're still seeing Egypt. And so what Gideon comes on the scene to do is to really rescue the Israelites out of this place, but they did evil in the sight of the Lord. So idolatry, let's talk about idolatry a little bit. What is idolatry? So here's one way to think about it. Idolatry is the outcome of lies entering your house. Sometimes when we think about idolatry, we think about people doing something bad. Like you made a mistake, like there's a brokenness of heart. And so we're not worshiping the God of Israel, but we found this like other God to worship. But I think idolatry more so is an outcome. It's an outcome of what? Of lies entering your house. And some of you in this place today are really careful about what you let into your house. Like some of you today are going to be real concerned that everybody closes the door because we want that hot air to stay on the outside of the house because you're running the AC, you're manning the thermostat. Right? Others of you are worried about bugs entering your house. Like there's, we, got, we all have our list of things that we want to stay on the outside. Some of you are this way with animals. It's fine for animals to be on the outside. Like, well, that cute little dog, that cute little cat, that cute, but I don't want it on the inside. So we're very concerned. We're very protective, actually. Like what belongs in the house. Some of you, this happens, happens to do with shoes. Like your kids are outside and there's... I don't know, lots of earth on your shoes. Those shoes are outside shoes, not inside shoes. And I wonder what would happen to us as a people if we would guard what we allow to enter our heart more than we do. Like, I wonder if we could take the posture of what we're willing to allow entering our homes and this kind of like guarding posture we have. And I wonder what would happen if we did that with things that we believe. Because if we don't do that, if we don't guard the lies that enter our story, what's the outcome of that? It's not that the outcome of that is nothing. We sometimes live that way. Oh no, we know we're going to hear lies all the time. And it's not really going to bother me. We kind of think like that lies of the evil one, they're going to bounce off me and stick to you or whatever you said in the back of the school bus, right? No, there's a, there's a cost. There's an outcome to lies entering the house. And the outcome is idolatry. What kinds of lies are you talking about, Dave? Well, I'm so glad that you asked because I have a slide that's going to help us with that today. Three kinds of lies. Lies about identity. Like identity has to do with who you are. We're not talking about what you do necessarily. We're talking about your personhood. And one of the lies from the evil one that you're going to have to guard in your life has to do about your identity. 
Like one of the ways the evil one messes with some of you in this room centers around identity. Like, do I belong? Am I enough? Like, do I measure up? For some of us in the house, failure we have received not as an event that has happened, but as a person. Like, we, in our personhood, in our essence, have failed. And it's the way the evil one wants to beat us up. Purpose, lies about purpose. Purpose is this question, hey, like, why am I here? Like, why does my life matter? Like, when I look around and I see all kinds of people with all kinds of lives, and the lie that the evil one wants to plant deep inside your heart is lies around purpose. Like, it wouldn't really matter if I was here. Like, if my feet weren't planted in this place, like, people wouldn't notice. Like, I don't really have anything to contribute. Like, everybody else should answer the question, but I don't need to answer the question. It's the moment in class when your teacher asks something and everybody raises their hand so you feel like you don't need to. Can I tell you that we live that way sometimes because we don't believe we have a purpose? And I think some of us today might need to step forward a little bit and go, no, like, I have a purpose to live out in the world. Even with all these other hands in the air, I have a purpose. Uh, the other lie that I think gets planted in our hearts is lies about future. Like, what's going to happen ultimately? Like, what's the next thing? And I just think the evil one loves to mess with God's people around these three, around identity and around purpose, and around future. And you're like, so what does this have to do with idolatry again? What it has to do with idolatry, that when these lies enter the human heart, and they take up residence, and the music that plays in your mind as you go about your day, as you go about parenting, as you go to the office, wherever it is you go, Bowing down to these lies leads to idolatry because you have to do something with these lies. So we can find ourselves in a place where we're serving identity instead of serving the God who gives us identity. We can find our place, ourselves in a place where we're serving purpose, like we're looking everywhere else for, would somebody tell me why I'm here? But the voice that is formative in our life is not the one who's given us purpose. The voice that's formative in our life is everyone else who wants to say, well, no, it's not about formation, it's about performance. And then lies around future, like looking for somebody else to tell me what's next. In Israel, what's happened with them is that these lies have entered their story, entered their heart so much that again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. So way back in the book of Exodus, there's a moment between God and his people, and God's just showing Israel his heart. Hey, this is who I am. So he says in the 20th chapter of Exodus, don't have any other gods before me. Don't go chasing after other stuff. You're going to encounter other gods in the earth. God never says 
that you're never going to encounter any other gods, any other false gods. But he says, don't go chasing after those false gods. Like this is, this is a warning against mixing, right? There, there are some things in the world that don't mix very well, like sugar and bedtime, anybody in the house. Not a good mixture. And so God's saying in the 20th chapter of Exodus to his people, don't try to mix the grace of God with human performance. It's not a good mixture. Let the grace of God fill your life, fill your soul, fill your mind. Don't try to then receive the grace of God, but then I'm going to like try to do all of these things too where I'm all of a sudden not defined by the grace that comes from Jesus, but by what other people say about my performance. So don't mix this. Because a lot of us in the room today, we say, well, no, we're not like mixing different gods. We're not like, you know, we're serving God, we're serving Jesus. And the idols in our world feel more invisible than they are. So he says, no other gods. And then later in that same chapter, he'll talk about, hey, like, no images. Like, no images. Don't, don't dilute the worship of God by creating some image. And the people do that, but that's another sermon for another day. So this is a warning not against mixing, but against dilution. Like, like, don't try to whittle God down to something more manageable. Sometimes parents will do this. If you're uh, at a, a birthday party, pizza party, where they're serving sugary drinks. Like, I remember uh, as a little kid being at uh, a party, and the first time I had root beer, right? It was like a memory in this body where I'm like, did Jesus return? What's happening here? I'm shaking, shaking before him. And what my parents would do is they would take the root beer and what do you do? You dilute it, right? You just take like a little bit of water, put water in there and like, oh, here you go, right? It's like diet, diet, diet root beer, right? (laughs) And part of what God's saying in this moment to Israel is like, don't do that to me. Don't try to make me more manageable. Don't dilute my grace down. Don't dilute my power down. Don't dilute my presence down to something that you can manage a little bit better. And that's what Israelites do, right? They, they create this golden calf, this image, and they bow down to it. And of course, it's like, well, how did they make the golden calf? Well, how did that happen? With their heart, of course, the same way we do. The heart is the instrument that creates the false gods, right? So a warning against mixture, a warning against diluting God down, and then there's one more. Don't use God's name for your own purposes. So this is a warning against assumptions. Like, don't take God's name in vain. And no, we're not talking about swears. That's another message for another day. But we're talking about, like, don't make assumptions that you can just simply attach the name of God to whatever, that, whatever is within your heart to do, right? So you don't go around the grocery store putting your name on stuff that doesn't belong to you. But we can find ourselves in a place where we can do that in our world. 
well, God just must affirm like this way of thinking in the world. So I'm going to put his name on it. No, don't do that to God's name. Don't use his name for your own purposes. Martin Luther in the 1500s said this about this. 1520, everybody in the house. So that's about 500 years ago. Therefore, you have made up for yourself some God who wants these things. Although there is no true God who requires this or who wants to give eternal life because of this, what then are you worshiping except an idol of your own heart? So no other gods. Don't make images and don't misuse my name. This is where Israel has found itself. And then verse 2, we find that Israel is protecting themselves. So they've done evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, they are engaged in idolatry. And then in the second verse, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves. And this week, I just couldn't get over that verse. Just the, the preoccupation that we live with in our hearts to make ourselves safe. Like they're under attack. And so what did they do? They created shelters for themselves. Three kinds of shelters, clefts, caves, and strongholds. And then it gets really real in verse three because the Midianites and the Amalekites from the east, they attack Israel. And they do this every year for seven years. So they plant their crops. Imagine this. Imagine this just for a second. They plant their crops. And it's time for harvest. And it's not the birds that steal their crops, but it's a whole people group. And they come in and they steal and destroy everything that has been planted in that ground. And they remove it. And some of you in the house are like, oh, it sounds like Dr. Seuss is the Grinch. It sort of is like that, isn't it? That there's this space that has been created, and then somebody else, some other creature on a mountain, sorry, I just happened in the moment, I had to say it, on the mountaintop, comes into the land that is not his and steals things that are not his. This is what has happened. I think it's actually a picture of the evil one. Because year two happens. And we've planted all of the stuff, and we have the cattle, we have all our things. And what happens? The Midianites and the Mount, they come again, and they steal. And some of you are like, well, why? Do they, like, not build a fence? I mean, they should have been, like, thinking about that after the second year, because year three happens, and it happens again. And year four, it happens again. And then in year five, and year six, and in year seven. And I don't know how you feel about somebody stealing a parking spot from you. Some of you don't like that very much. Somebody takes your spot in church, and you're like, oh, we sat there next? Imagine everything you own. Someone's stealing. Not just once. Not just twice. Not just three times. But again, and again, and again, and again, and again. This is the experience of Israel. That it's not that they've experienced grief and hardship before. And 
loss. It's that they continue to experience it. But the story continues. That's not the end. In verse 6, Israel cries out. And last week we talked about this. When we see crying out in the scriptures, we can think of three things. We can think of Israel being in some kind of distress. There's some kind of distance in between the people of Israel and God. And then there's this sorrow. There's this ache. There's that, oh, here I am again. So they cry out to the Lord. Just like they did in chapter 4. And God sends Deborah and Barak. And they defeat the Canaanites. It happens again in chapter 6. And here's what happens. So there's a man named Gideon. And God comes to Gideon. And he says, hey, I'm going I'm to use you in a powerful way. I'm going to use you to help rescue Israel out of the clutches of the Midianites and the Amalekites. But before we do that, there's something that we need to do first. What you need to do first is you need to tear down the altars that your family has built. So we find out that Gideon's dad, or generations before him, uh, they built towers to two gods, the god of Baal. So in the ancient world, uh, the god of Baal is like the storm god. Right? So this picture of power and authority and havoc in the world. So you've got to make sure you don't make Baal mad because then you have bad weather. Some of you are like, it feels like Baal lives in South Dakota, but that's another thing. So there's that, but there's also another one that his family built, uh, a tower to Asherah. Uh, who's Asherah? Well, Asherah is like the fertility god. So if you want to get pregnant, you want to have a family, you want to continue that generation like, you got to make sure you don't make Asherah mad. And these are people who follow Yahweh, follow the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who have constructed these places of worship. So they've mixed the grace of God with another way of life. Let's not be too hard on these people today. Because they've mixed these two ways of thinking. And so God says to Gideon, hey, I want you to go and tear down what your father and generations before have built. And so Gideon gets ten friends. Because, of course, when somebody calls you to do something hard, what do you do? You've got to gather, gotta gather the squad. So he gathers the squad. So him and there's these ten men. And so they go at night. If you're going to destroy something your dad built, go at night. Don't do it during the day. Not advisable. So they go at night and they tear down the Baal and the Asherah poles. And of course, people find out, obviously, they wake up in the morning and they see that this has been destroyed. And I think there's a, there's a couple lessons, I think, in, in this story about Gideon. Uh, that before Gideon steps in to save Israel out of the hand of Midian, God calls him to do some preparatory work. And so I think it's this uh, idea today. 
that private faithfulness is a prerequisite to public faithfulness. So if we're, if we're going to be faithful publicly, if we're going to be useful publicly, how's that going to happen? Like, how are we going to be useful people in the hand of God? Like, how is this church going to be useful in the city for God? It's private faithfulness. Because before he leads Israel out of the hand of the Midianites, what does he have to do? He's got to be faithful privately before God. And I just think it's important for us as followers of Jesus just to know that when Jesus in the New Testament is like, hey, when you pray, don't grab a microphone. When you pray, don't start a podcast so everybody can hear about it. When you pray, pray. Go in your closet, Jesus will say. And lift up your eyes and your voice to your Father in heaven who hears you. And I wonder if sometimes the reason we, we do not have public usefulness in the church is because maybe we don't have private faithfulness. So what if that's where we begin? Being privately faithful before God instead of just wanting to be publicly useful. And there's another learning, I think, in the text that's powerful. Oh my gosh, something's happening. Brock, I need you. I don't know what happened. The devil. Okay. So here's the thing about repentance. A lot of times when we think about repentance, what do we think about? We think about like turning away from it and walking in a different direction. Repentance is not turning 360 degrees. That'd be continuing the same thing. Sometimes we think about that. Little math lesson in the house today. Right? You hear pastors say that. I turned 360 degrees around. Uh, Still doing the same thing. 180 degrees. That's typically how we think of it, isn't it? But what if repentance is deeper than that? What if repentance is more active than that? What if repentance requires more than that? What if repentance is not just simply turning from an idol, but what if repentance is tearing it down? Because God doesn't say to Gideon, like, hey, turn away from the idol of Baal. Turn away from Asherah and, like, turn towards my face. He goes, no, take your buddies. It's coming down. I'm not okay with it continuing to reside in the land that I have carried you into. And I think there's something in this for us today. Like he's carried us into a place. And so the whole Baal and Asherah poles of our lives, God's not just like, oh no, Dave, just turn away from me. He goes, no, it's got to come down. Because don't try, don't you dare try to mix the grace of God with the effort of It's the grace of God. Don't turn away from it. It's got to come down. Why? It's got to come down because it's not just you that should be turning away from it. 
but there's a whole generation of people that I want to raise up, and I don't want them to experience life centered and gathered around Baal and Asherah. I want them gathered around the power of Yahweh, who says, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, my love endures forever. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has sin and death and hell been removed from my people, so it's just got to come down. So we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. You want to say, okay, if idols exist because lies exist, like how do you tear down the idol? You tear down the idol by attacking the lie. Because idols exist because lies have been embraced. So the third chapter of Genesis, there's Adam and there's Eve and there's a serpent. And Adam and Eve are given a set of instructions. Oh, the bands can come up. This is your time. They're given a set of instructions. But then the, the serpent figure in the story you know, says to the people of God, did God really say? Like, did God really say you weren't supposed to eat from that tree? Starts to, like, sow that seed of doubt in the hearts of Adam and Eve. Why? Because lies are fertilizer for idols to grow. That's why. And if it doesn't need to build the idol in your heart, that's a lot of work. What he needs to do is plant the lie in your heart and fertilize it day after day, week after week, year after year. And what's the outcome of that being fertilized in your heart? The outcome of that is there's the idol of Baal and Asherah. Because the idols of Baal and Asherah don't just like pop up overnight. They grow over time. And so I just want to ask the church today, like, what's the lie? Like, if the serpent would be speaking to you today, what's the lie? Like, did God really say that he's going to prepare a place for you? Because I don't know. He hasn't done it yet. He didn't do it last year. He didn't do it 10 years ago. What if he never does? Is he really going to prepare a place for you? Like, did God really say like that he's the good shepherd? Because, like, look at your life. Your life doesn't look like it's being led by a shepherd that's good. There's a lot of things that don't really make sense. Like, did, did God really say you're forgiven? Like, did God really say that you belong to him? Did God really say that today you'll be with me in paradise? This is how the evil one works. Did God really say, like, hey, come to me? All of you who are tired and weary, and I will give you rest. Did God really say? And just for a lot of us in the house today, 
maybe the most helpful thing that we could do is to get our eyes on the lie that Satan uses as fertilizer in our own heart. And I'll just say this too today, that on a day like Father's Day, I think the enemy wants to work stinking overtime. Because not everybody has been raised up in a story that makes sense, where today we get to to celebrate whoever that figure is. And there's somebody in the front of the room who's lived that. And it's good for you to know that if that's part of your story, it's also part of mine. Like today's very complicated for me. I got two little munchkins running around who think the world of me and I think the world of them, but I have a father who does not feel that way about me. So this day is the day in church I always skip. Does anybody have one of those? You don't have to raise your hand. Raise your heart hand. We're not taking attendance. But today's that day. Why? Because for a long time, the lie that the evil one used in my own life is, hey, like what your grandfather did, left his family in his 40s for somebody else and built another life, is exactly what your dad did in his 40s, left your family for somebody else and built another life. And so you know what's coming to you. You know exactly what's coming to you. And he would hit me with that over and over and over again. And I can live in and under that lie. Or I can understand where that lie comes from and the origin of that lie not being rooted in grace and in the gospel or I can receive the God who says hey as far as the east is from the west and oh guess what behold I'm doing a new thing he who has ears let him hear and I don't say any of that today to make this about the person in the front we got enough pastors doing that in the world Lord knows. but I'm saying that for the person here today who might think because I do what I do, the assumption might be that it's just like, it all makes sense. And of course you would say that. Of course you would ask me to think about the lie in my own heart because well, I've got one too. And so maybe the most, most helpful thing for us today is to spend some time reflecting what's the lie that the evil one comes with you with because that's going to be the lie he's going to want to use as fertilizer to build idols in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you today for the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of your grace, which tells us whatever we bring doesn't disqualify us. And we thank you for what the cross tells us that we've been forgiven and we have been made clean and there is a future that starts today so God in a real way we are not simply waiting on you not waiting for you to do something because you already have what we're trying to do today is to get our eyes on what you have done and to live in light of it 
as we wait for your return. So God, I want to pray for the people in this room today for whom today is hard and it's heavy and it's dark and it hurts. I pray that they would receive words, maybe not from a human person, but from you deep in their heart and soul. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. And absolutely have I gone to prepare a place for them and absolutely am I preparing them for the place. God, thank you so much for the amazing men in this church. So many men who have centered their eyes and their hearts on the kingdom and who live out of that spring of life for the way that they pay attention uh, to the kids in this church and for the life that that gives them so that we can grow generations in this church of people who not have heard about grace but have felt its texture and that's made a difference in their life and in their story. So God, would, would you remove the lies today that the evil one would be glad to deposit within us and would you help us tear down by your spirit those idols as we get our eyes on you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing one more together. Thank <laughs> you.